you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. Yes, we are back in the Gospel of John after a short sermon series on leaders in the church and preceding that, a period of summer vacation. But we now pick back up again right where we left off in John chapter 3 as we are going to continue our journey through this gospel. I warned you at the outset that it was going to take us some time to get through this lengthy book. And I trust that the Lord has a great deal to bless us with in this book. Uh, Our text this morning is John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Dear Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up our eyes to your word. That as we study your word, we would see the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would not only know him better, but that we would be prompted to serve him better. And we would be made more and more into his image. For there is none like our Savior. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Are you tempted to think that others don't give you the respect that you deserve? Most of the world's problems can be summed up in this issue. The response of most people is either to complain and be miserable, or to be angry and to try and grab what we deserve. But there is a better way. Those who follow Jesus can set aside feelings of envy and anger. They can do so because of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. Today we see this lived out in John the Baptist. We can be reminded that we don't need to be trapped by self-importance. 
As we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, we see His importance and we see our meaning found in our Savior. And so this morning I'd like us to look at this interchange between John and his disciples. And I'd like us to see two things. First, I'd like us to see the temptation that comes to people when they feel that they do not have the respect they are owed. That they're not held up in the esteem they should be. And that's a temptation that doesn't just come to ancient Israelites. It comes to men and women and children in Katy, Texas too. And then we see the godly response of John. It's a response to the temptation that gives us both motivation and guidance as to how we should treat this temptation, how we can fight it and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. A temptation and a godly response. Well, we come back here to the Gospel of John. And I want to refresh your recollection about where we are because this text comes to us in a context. Remember that at this point in the Gospel, Jesus has just come onto the scene. He is not the significant figure yet. His cousin John is actually more significant than he is. What Jesus has done so far is to gather together a few of his disciples, and he's done a few public actions. You may recall that he turned water into wine, a miracle at the wedding at Cana. But you will also recall that Cana is a small backwater town. And so probably not many people heard about it or knew what had happened. Now, Jesus also did go into Jerusalem and make a more public example of his ministry when he cleansed the temple of the money changers, when he overthrew their tables and held that the temple is a house of prayer in accordance with God's revealed word and will. And then, previously in this chapter, Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus, one of the rulers in Israel, one of the, the ruling religious leaders. He spoke to Nicodemus about the new birth and about the need to believe in him, the son whom God had sent to save the world. And now Jesus is in the countryside. We pick this up at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, we've seen this phrase after this before in chapter 2, verse 12, John used it. And you will recall then we didn't know exactly how much time had passed. John could have told us it was the next day or the next week or the next month, but he doesn't. But he does tell us that this is happening after the discussion that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And we see that Jesus is not in Galilee, where his main public ministry will begin shortly. He is instead in the rural areas of Judea. Now, we know this because of verse 24. If you look at that with me, it's a parenthetical that John gives to us. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, I remind you, don't get your Johns confused. There's John, the disciple and apostle, the author of this book. And then there's John, the cousin of Jesus, often called John the Baptist. And I can say that without fear, even as a Presbyterian. Well, it's John the Baptist who has not been put in prison. And we know from the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
who are called the synoptic gospel writers. Optic means to see or an eye. You go to an optician. Sin means with or together. They have one point of view. They have a similar point of view, whereas John tends to have a, a different and complementary point of view of Jesus' ministry. They all clearly say that when John was put in prison, Jesus withdrew to Galilee, and then he began his public ministry. You may recall that Jesus went into the synagogue, read from the prophet Isaiah, and then spoke to them and said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Basically saying, I'm the Messiah, and I'm here. And then, shortly after that, he gives the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is the very public ministry of Jesus Christ. Now what you need to remember in our context is that these events are happening before that. This is not Jesus being known wide and far yet. And John is still conducting his ministry. We see this in verse 23. John also was baptizing at Aon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. So the other gospel writers describe this a little more fully for us. They tell us that a great many people were coming to John, that multitudes were coming to John. And this makes sense from what John the writer tells us because John the Baptist found an area that was plentiful with respect to water. You know, if you've got to baptize scores of people, you need more than a puddle and a trickle. You want a big swimming pool. You want a river that flows. And there are a great many people coming and professing their repentance and seeking the Lord and being baptized. That's what's going on. Now, this is important. Do not forget verse 23. Because John's disciples seem to by verse 26. So John's ministry is still going and blowing. And Jesus is the up-and-comer. I know that's hard to think about with the Lord Jesus Christ, but Jesus is the up-and-comer. His ministry has not yet been brought to the full public view. Well, it's important for us to see this because right now, John is a bigger deal than Jesus. That's what we see. But Jesus is described as doing what John had been doing at the end of verse 22. Jesus was baptizing. Now, there's a note of clarification. If your eyes scan down the page of your Bible to John chapter 4 and verse 2, we will see that Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So already there's kind of a rumor mill that's out there that's not entirely accurate. But Jesus is certainly involved... We might think of him leading a, the worship service that's involved with a baptism. We might think of him uh, speaking or preaching. But he's not actually doing the baptizing. His disciples are. But understand this scene before us. Jesus has just been baptized. We see that in Matthew 3 and Mark 1 and Luke 3. And shortly after that, his disciples are now baptizing as a part of his ministry. Things are changing rapidly. Well, that's the scene before us. And then we see something interesting and frankly disturbing. Look with me at verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now remember what John's ministry 
was. He was challenging the religious authorities. He was telling them that they were not right with God, that they needed to repent, and that they needed to follow God's word, and that they needed to stop building themselves up and their structures up and look to the Lord. That's what John's ministry is all about. It's about repentance and the need to have a heart that is right with God. John's ministry is so countercultural that he is put in prison and executed. Think about that. And what are his disciples doing? They're arguing with a Jew about purification. Now, this is not a simple discussion. The word translated discussion here hides a bit from you. Elsewhere in the Bible, this word is not translated discussion. It's translated as debate or controversy. This is not two ladies sitting and having tea and discussing what their last week was like. This is a hot argument. You've seen this before, right? Two people really getting in each other's face arguing about politics or about sports or about religious matters. You almost wonder whether they're going to bump each other or knock noses. They're, they're so into it with one another. It's those kind of debates or arguments where you wonder if either side's even listening to the other instead of just preparing their next volley in the argument. That's what's going on here. Now, what does this mean? What it means is they're not arguing about repentance. They're not arguing about spiritual things. They're not even arguing about baptism. They're arguing about a ritual cleansing that belongs to the Jews. You may recall that this word purification was used earlier by John in chapter 2 to describe the water jugs at the wedding at Cana. The, the large vessels of water that Jesus turned into wine. John tells us that these vessels were set aside for the purification. And that's what the Jewish rite was. It was a rite of washing. And you would take water and you would do ritual cleansings, sometimes daily, sometimes multiple times a day, sometimes weekly. It would depend on what the ritual was. But you see, this is what is going on here. These rites would specify how to wash, when to wash, and what to wash. Now, can you imagine having a debate about the best way to take a shower? Could you imagine that? You know, I'm sure we could. Should we shampoo our hair first? Or use soap first? Should we use Separate shampoo and conditioner or a two-in-one? Should we wash our feet first and then our face or our face and then our feet? How should we do this? We could have a long discussion about this, and I'm sure there are opinions. You, you don't need to share them with me. I'm sure there are opinions about this, but could you imagine having a heated discussion about that? And even more so, could you imagine having a heated discussion about that while there are other important things going on? Because that's what's going on as John is ministering. They're having this debate while John is calling people vipers. While John is saying, repent. While John is saying, you're not right with God. They're talking about, should the water be lukewarm or should it be cool? Should it be in vessels or should it be in jars? That's what they're doing. 
So what's going on here? I think it's that John's disciples are taking themselves a little too seriously. You see, they are with John as he is baptizing. And John is controversial. John is famous. John is popular. And they are now taking this occasion to show how important they are and how knowledgeable they are. They want to show their expertise. So they find the local uh, Jewish leader or teacher and they have a heated debate about what's the best way for purification. But isn't this really the way with all of us? We try and show how we are experts and how we're important. Now, I can't think of a better example, you probably have one in your own life, than when men who are in seminary or are new seminarians try, and I use that word intentionally, try to preach. Now, I will say, first as a caveat, that one of my greatest items of respect for Pastor Meir, is that he does not fall into this trap. He didn't when he was in seminary, and he doesn't now. But many young men who are in seminary decide that the way that they are to preach is to impress you with how much they know. And they take everything they can possibly think of and try to ram it down your throat in 20 minutes. Every piece of grammar, every archaeological fact, every cross-reference, everything they could possibly know, and they give you a whirlwind hoping that you'll be duly impressed with how much they know. And what they don't realize is after you've had experience in preaching, that it's far more important to determine what to leave in your office than what to bring out to the pulpit. But again, you've seen this in other areas of your life, people who want to impress you with their expertise. That's the temptation for John's disciples. But there's more than that, that shows us their hearts and the temptation that's got a hold of them. They're not only filled with self-importance, they're also jealous of anyone or anything that takes the spotlight off of them. Do you see here in verse 26? They get all worked up by this argument and they come to John and they say to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. And all are going to him. Now, you see, they're all worked up. And that reminds them that they need to bring something to John's attention. Now, again, don't forget the context here. Instead of being excited by what God is doing in the lives of people who are coming to John, they're focused on themselves and their reputation and their influence. They come to John and they try to get John worked up also. And you can see it just in the way that they speak. They start rabbi. Now, John was not an official, we might say diplomat rabbi. He wasn't a part of a school of one of the Jewish schools of uh, religion. But he was a teacher. And so it would not be improper to call him rabbi. But I want you to understand this. There's a reason they start here. They're saying to him, teacher... You know, you're the rabbi. You're the one everyone comes to. You're the big cheese. You're important. Pay attention here. I think your reputation's starting to slip. And then they're going to they're gonna go on. But they want to get John's attention. They want to flatter him a little bit. They want to remind him how important he is. Because remember, 
The more important John is, the more important they are, right? And then they say, listen to this. He who was with you across the Jordan. Now, this is further proof that the Bible is the verbally inspired word of God. This is not divine thoughts or concepts that men just pull together as they would. No, every word that you have in your Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this is important here because look at what they're saying. He who was with you across the Jordan. You know, that guy. Who's that guy? It's Jesus. Now stop and think about that for a moment. They can't even bring themselves to say Jesus' name to give him a little bit of press. He's got to be that guy. And he's not just that guy. He's that guy that was over there with you. And by the way, he's so less important than you, you were the one who bore witness to him. It's as if they're saying, the only reason he's got any publicity is because of you, Rabbi. His whole deal is built on your foundation. This is what you need to understand. He's only known because you gave him his start. And then look at what they say. Look, he's baptizing. Now, the look here is an actual word. It's a, it's a particle in the Greek that means like, hey, pay attention. Look here. Listen up. There's emphasis here. They want John to know that Jesus is baptizing. This is the other shoe dropping. Now, what's important about this? It's almost as if they said to John, John, that's your thing. You are John the Baptist. If Jesus picks this up, what are you going to do? What are you going to be? John the locust eater? John the camel hair shirt guy? No, you're John the Baptist. This is our thing. We can't let somebody get in competition here. Otherwise, we're going to lose the entire franchise. And you can see them saying this. They, they clearly are are concerned that Jesus is going to cut into their business. We need to do something about this, they say. And it's the way that they say it. Look, they say, all are going to him. Now, again, look at the words and the language. Is it true that everyone is going to Jesus? Well, of course not. How do we know that? Go back to verse 23. John's baptizing so many people, he needs lots of water. So it's not as if no one's coming to speak to John anymore. He's not baptizing anyone. But you see, what they're doing is they're exaggerating. They're trying to make a point. They're trying to influence John. Now, before you get too judgmental, think about your life. Are you tempted to get upset when someone else succeeds? Do you resent someone else having the spotlight? Kids, what do you do when mom and dad pay more attention to one of your siblings? If your household was anything like mine, what happens is when mom and dad are focusing on something one of the children is saying or doing, all of a sudden the other children break into a chorus of, well, look at me, look at what I can do. But dad, look at this. But mom, let me tell you about that. We want to get the attention back. We don't like it when we're ignored and other people get the attention. 
And so we, we overemphasize, we do things, we exaggerate. I have to confess, this is one of the things that I have to deal with in my sanctification. I have been known on very rare occasions to exaggerate. Yes, I know, I know. Now, the difficulty I have is often when I will exaggerate, my wife is standing near me. And so I will exaggerate and I'll say, you know, that was a wonderful event at church. We must have had more than 100 people there. And she'll say, how were you counting? I don't know that there was 100 people there. And usually I get in so much trouble, she'll say, well, I've got the sheet here of attendance. And I count 69 people. How do you round up 69 to 100? Right? But you see, what I'm trying to do is to get your attention. I'm trying to make emphasis about something. And really what I'm trying to do is make it reflect well on me. That's what we do. We all do this, don't we? I'm using myself as an example, not to embarrass you. But you know you do it. It's part of our human sinful nature. And this is also true in the church, isn't it? Do we want our ministry in the church to get first billing? Do we resent other churches that are growing faster than ours? This is a hard truth we have to face. This temptation doesn't just come to ancient Israelites. It comes to people in Katy as well. So how do we respond to this temptation? If we see that we have feelings of envy and resentment. If we notice that we argue about petty things to show how great we are. Well, John gives us the answer. Three statements in the next three verses. It's John's godly response. First, he tells us, don't think that you are the source of your skills and importance. Look with me at verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. All that you have, all that you are, comes from God. I know sometimes that's hard to take on because we work hard at things. We study hard to get good grades in school. We work hard on projects at home. We work hard in our workplace. We work hard with raising our children. But the truth is, the only reason you're even able to work hard is because God has given you the health, the mental capacity, the circumstances, and the ability to do it. It's not as if you're owed that ability. And, and John is very emphatic about this. He says, even one thing. Not even one thing comes from you. It's all from God. This is a profound statement. It reminds us that we are never a big deal. It is always the Lord who should be praised, honored, looked to. If someone else has success or something you want, praise God. Do you see what John is doing here? He's taking the focus off of himself, off of comparisons, and he's telling his disciples that they need to focus on the Lord. He's the one who's important. Now, there's more than that. He tells us that God is sovereign and he gives how he wills to give. You have something because God has chosen to give it to you. I have something because God has chosen to give it to me. 
John's telling us that this is not a mistake. His disciples think it is. They need a plan B to buttress up the baptizing ministry. But you see, John says this isn't a mistake. They want John to change tactics, to fix the problem, to get back on top. But John says this is God's will. Now let me tell you, brothers and sisters, we are Presbyterians. The sovereignty of God is our thing. But does it reach down into your soul? Does it affect how you live life? How you view others around you? Does thinking about God's sovereignty squash jealousy and envy in you? Because it should. God is sovereign. John then goes on in verse 28 and he presses the point. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He says, you shouldn't be surprised that this is my position, brothers. I told you it was coming. You heard me testify that I am not the Christ. This means that I'm not ultimately important. You heard me say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Follow Him. This is no shock to John or his disciples or to you or to me. John's saying, I'm here and doing what I do to serve the Christ, not compete with the Christ. I've been sent beforehand to bring Him glory and to point others to Him. Now, this is a very simple matter. But it's very important. I'm going to give you some profound advice that you can memorize. You are not Jesus. It's true. You cannot be Jesus to others. You are not even significant apart from Jesus. Now, we may not say that we are out loud, but we often think that it is the case. We think that the world will not go on without us. But the truth is it will. The church will go on without us. Ministry will go on without us. We need to be reminded of this all the time. But see how freeing that is for you. It's not up to you. It's not your job to fix everything. Parents, you need to hear this. You don't need to save your kids. You just have to point them to Jesus. Kids, don't listen to all the chatter on the news and in the world that says, you need to save the economy. You need to save our country. The children are our future. And if we don't do this properly, everything is going to go haywire. No. Trust Jesus. He's in control. Then there's a third statement that John makes in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly in the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John says, I'm happy exactly as I am. I'm not the bridegroom. The bride is not mine. She's the groom's. He says, basically, I'm the best man 
That's what the friend of the bridegroom is. It's the best man. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means more than the best man means today. Basically, today, the best man's job is to remember to bring the ring and not to drop it in the ceremony, right? And even that is taken care of. Some of you that I have, uh, I have married here in this church know what I'm going to say right now. That whenever we go through a rehearsal, I tell the bride and the groom and everyone else in the party, if the ring falls to the ground, I pick up the ring. Because we are not all bending over to pick up the ring and crashing heads. So even if you're the best man and you drop the ring, I got you. As long as it comes out of your pocket, your job is done, the wedding will go on. But in John's day, the best man had a much larger job. He was the chief negotiator between the groom and his family and the bride and her family so that the wedding would actually come to pass. He was the one that helped the groom to put on the feast and to do the planning for it. It was much more than showing up with a ring and giving a speech. And then back then he served to make sure that the marriage came about. It's said that the best man or the friend of the bridegroom, actually, one of his jobs was to stand outside the bridal chamber while the bride was inside. And he was to keep all others away until he heard the bridegroom's voice. Do you see John picking that up? Hear his voice in verse 29? Rejoices greatly at his voice. He hears the voice of the bridegroom and he says, Enter in. Enjoy. You're married. Be blessed. And then he would go off some distance, but he would still stand and protect that bridal chamber to make sure no one came and bothered the bride and the groom on their wedding night. That's a very important responsibility. He would never have thought of cutting in. You know, you don't expect to go to a wedding and have the best man say, you know what, I think I'll kiss the bride. It's unthinkable, right? In fact, in John's day, in many cultures, it would have been criminal to try to cut in and take the bride for your own. And so, why does John feel the need, not feel the need, to have the bride? Why does John not feel the need to have the attention? You see it here in the text. It's because he rejoices greatly in the bridegroom. Now, one of the other things that's very enjoyable about officiating a wedding is that when there's a wedding and those doors open up and the bride comes through in a radiant white gown and her dad at her side, usually with a tear coming down or a sniffle to try to hold it back, everyone turns and looks at the bride. I have the best seat in the house. Because not only do I have a straight-on shot at the bride, I'm right next to the groom. And that is money. When the groom sees his bride for the first time. But I'm going to tell you what else I can see that none of you all ever see. I see the best man. Now, nobody ever looks at the best man at a wedding, right? They look at the bride, they look back at the groom, they look back at the bride. Nobody ever checks out to see what the best man is doing. I do. Because he's right there. And the best man is almost always the closest friend of the groom. 
Often it's a sibling or someone he's been friends with for a very long time. And you ought to see, next time do it, see the face of the best man at a wedding. How joyful he is for his friend, the groom. How he rejoices that this day has come and the blessing has come for the bride and the bridegroom to be joined together. And John says, that's the joy I have. I don't need to be worried about me because I've got Jesus. And Jesus has his bride. Why would I possibly want to get in the way of that? John says, actually, his joy is complete in verse 29. And that word has the connotation not just of being done, but of being fulfilled. There's nothing else you need to fill up in your joy. It's as much as you could possibly have. Jesus is more important to John than any attention or any accolade. Jesus is John's joy. Is that true in your life? Do you take more joy in Jesus than in the praise of others? Than in your own reputation? Is your focus on Jesus and who he is and what he brings to you and how you can point others to him? Because that is what it means to be a Christian. John sums all of this up in verse 30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I want you to notice there are two parts to this statement. He doesn't just say, Jesus must increase. He says, I must decrease. I must be less so that Jesus can be more. That's what John says. Our lives are not about how we can impress others. We are not shortchanged when others do not recognize what we have done. Our lives are about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Our purpose is to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. Do you know that? Are you chasing after respect or glory today? Don't. Look to Jesus. He is the one who shows you your true worth. Even though you are a sinner who has rebelled against God, Jesus loved you enough to give his life so that you might be forgiven. All you have to do is look to him and believe that he is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the one who paid your debts, and you will be saved. Your greatest reward comes not because of what you have done, but only by resting in what Jesus has done. If you have not trusted in Jesus today, now is the time to do that. Give up trying to make yourself worthy. Give up trying to measure up to someone else's standards. And to measure up to your own standards. Just believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be a part of the bride. Jesus is redeemed people. And for those here who do know Jesus, remember that you are the friend, the best man. Your joy is to bring the bride to the groom, to praise the groom in your speech and in your life. What a glorious thing that is. 
May we never tire of making much of Jesus. Let's pray.